0: Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. One morning last week, I was unpacking from a hiking trip, paying a bill, preparing for a house guest, polishing a pair of boots, doing laundry, confirming an appointment, and thinking about a topic for this sermon all at the same time. And at some point, I watched myself starting a task— being reminded of some other task, and wandering from room to room with an Allen wrench in hand, reminding me I was supposed to be fixing the garbage disposal. It seemed a good time to reflect on the perils of distraction and the power of paying attention. At the age of 44, Henry David Thoreau lay dying of tuberculosis, his family friend, the abolitionist warrior, Parker Pillsbury, stopped by. Pillsbury's curiosity about the afterlife got the best of him. He writes, when I entered, Thoreau was looking deathly weak and pale. I said as I took his hand, you seem so near the brink of the dark river that I almost wonder how the opposite shore may appear to you. Thoreau famously replied, one world at a time. Whenever I catch myself driven to distraction, this is the mnemonic that drives me back to attention. One world at a time. Do this. Then this, then this, breathe. (laughs) Sadia Maskud wrote a really great piece about distraction that opens with an interesting premise. We're distracted not because of all that noise in the background and foreground of our brains, but because of the surround sound, she says. Actually, It's that our brains love stimulation. The reason it's such an uphill slog to return to center and refocus is all wrapped up in one little thing, one word, dopamine. Oh, dopamine. How we love the buzz of the phone, ding of the text, the little red bell on Facebook, hearts on Instagram, and all our notifications, including Your order is ready. Basically, whatever we associate with pleasure. Every shiny new thing catches our attention and steals it away, hijacking our brains from whatever we were doing a moment ago. This phenomenon even has a name. It's called novelty bias. And it's not just that. Novelty bias would be enough, but in addition to our weakness for shiny and new, we hate, hate to be bored. We have almost no tolerance for boredom. We would do a lot to escape it, which is why the entertainment industry is a multi-million dollar enterprise. When we're not being entertained, our minds wander. It is their nature to wander. Linda Stone, a famous former Apple and Microsoft consultant, coined the term continuous partial attention. Harriet Griffley, author of The Art of Concentration, writes, by adopting an always-on, anywhere, anytime, anyplace behavior, we exist in a constant state of alertness that scans the world, but never really gives our full attention to anything or anyone. In the short term, we adapt well to these demands. Adrenaline and cortisone are designed to support us through bursts of intense activity. But in the long term, the stress hormones, adrenaline and cortisone, knock out the feel-good hormones, serotonin and dopamine, which help us feel calm and happy and and create a physiological hyper alert state that is always scanning for stimuli, provoking a sense of addiction that is temporarily assuaged by checking in. There it is, addiction. Constant interruptions affect our heart rate, make us feel jittery and have the same effect as losing a night's sleep. The costs also include a 10-point decline in IQ, which is twice the impact of smoking marijuana. Just saying. In an article entitled Harvard Psychologists Reveal the Real Reason We're Also Distracted, Matthew Killingsworth and Daniel Gilbert conclude that the real problem isn't our penchant for a stimulating or chaotic environment. They are, we say, wired for a state of continuous distraction. We spend a whopping 47% of every waking hour mind-wandering, an experience so ordinary, so natural to us, we don't even notice it. This just feels sad to me. Nearly half of our precious time, we're thinking about the future and relinquishing the gift of the present. In addition, when we lose focus, we're less creative, less productive. We wallow in the sensation of being completely overwhelmed, miss opportunities, and are less happy. Okay, that's all the bad news. We know that attention is among our most precious resources. And thankfully, very thankfully, there's a lot we can do to heal our wayward minds. I wanna share some secular hacks and then talk about a way to engage spiritually with the power of attention. I'll begin by inviting us to give ourselves some grace. Forming new habits takes about three weeks. So first up, let's talk about our phones. For years, I have preached about the importance of mourning. Some of you can say it with me. When we take care of mourning, Morning takes care of the day. When we take care of our mornings, the morning will take care of the day. Right after we awaken, our brains are in the alpha state, that gateway to our subconscious. It turns out that those very first few minutes are really important. They can dictate the rest of our day. If we are checking our email or social or reading the news, we are not reaping the benefits of the richness of that time. Trust me, I know this is not going to be easy, (laughs) but the evidence is incontrovertible. Do not touch your phone. Use your earliest waking moments to read or write, walk or exercise, eat breakfast, listen to music, or sit in silence. Once your day is underway, one way to really help yourself with minimizing distractions is by turning off your smartphone notifications. You be the judge of whether or not you really need to know ASAP that Apple Arcade is now offering a puzzle that involves embroidery, that Gail King and Oprah are enjoying their trip to Jordan, or that Utah just broke the state's record for the largest snowpack. Could you read about that later perhaps during a designated tech break? Next, consider the five more rule, which I personally, personally think is more realistic as a three more rule. Here it is, whenever we feel like quitting, we can do just three more. Just three more. Three more minutes, three more reps, three more pages. This is a form of mind training or spiritual practice. We surpass our point of restlessness or boredom, and over time, we find ourselves increasing our tolerance for it. Just three more. Some people swear by... The Pomodoro Technique. This is a famous time management tool employed by productivity enthusiasts. The idea is to break down your attention into 25-minute intervals followed by five-minute breaks or 60-minute intervals followed by 10-minute breaks, whatever works for you. You set a timer to signal a break. Get up stretch, move to some music you love with the added bonus that the music is timed. When the song is over, time's up, back to work you go, and whatever you're up to. And you know I'm going to tuck meditation into this list. Practicing sitting or walking with focus and attending to our breath quiets our nervous system and restores our equilibrium. Start with 10 minutes of silence, 10 minutes of stillness, and then apply the three more rule. If you are stymied by meditation because you're not sure what to do with your busy mind, you can try the four, seven, eight breath. Four, seven, eight. That's in for four, hold for seven. Out for eight. We can try it right now. Ready? So completely exhale through your mouth, make that whoosh whoosh sound. Close your mouth and quietly inhale through your nose. Mental count of four. Hold it to seven, and exhale through your mouth, making the whoosh again for a count of eight. Whoosh. Okay, we can do it again. Ready? In breath two. Three, four, hold it, three, four, five, six, seven, whoosh, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Four, seven, eight. For a total of four cycles, completely resets everything. It's science. I don't understand it, but I believe it. Four seven eight can try just change your life. So now we're veering into these spiritual solutions, right? Let's really go there. The Thai meditation master Achantra taught a practice he caught taking the one seat. So here are his directions. Just go into the room and put a chair in the center. Take the one seat in the center of the room. Open all the doors and windows and see who comes to visit. You will witness all kinds of scenes and actors, all kinds of temptations and stories, everything imaginable. Your only job is to stay in your one seat. You will see it all arise and pass. And out of this, he says, wisdom and understanding will come. A cha is speaking, of course, both literally and metaphorically. The literal part is that directive to sit through whatever arises, to sit until clarity and understanding are surfaced. Many of us have cobbled together our faith from disparate spiritual traditions. One of the 10,000 things I love about Unitarian Universalism is that none of us has to renounce our former religion or disavow our past. Some do, of course, and others drag the whole mess into the sanctuary and spend years sorting it out. But the point is to cultivate a faith we can believe in, a faith that heals and holds and upholds us. When we join this beloved spiritual community, we commit to doing it here with each other bearing witness and helping one another, we covenant to build that road together on which we're all waking up to love, service, justice, and peace. Our one seat, as a Chan Cha would say, is here. Buddhist teacher Jack Kornfield writes, many experienced students have come to the retreats I teach without having made a commitment to any practice. They've been initiated by lamas. They've done Sufi dancing, sat a Zen retreat or two, participated in shamanic rituals. And yet they ask, why am I still unhappy? Why am I caught in the same old struggles? And Jack says, I ask them, what is your spiritual practice? They often answer that they haven't chosen yet. Until we choose a discipline and commit to it, how can a deep understanding of ourselves and the world be revealed to us? Awakening, living this sort of undistracted, unchaotic life, requires sustained practice and a commitment to look deeply into ourselves and the world around us to discover what will free us. We must look at ourselves over and over again, he says, in order to learn what it means to allow our hearts to open. Jack tells the heartbreaking story of a man who came on retreat, whose only child, a four-year-old, had died in a car accident just a few months earlier. Added to his grief were some misplaced guilt because he'd been driving, and because he had survived. The man had been going from retreat to retreat ever since, just desperate for relief. He had been blessed by a swami and taken vows with a nun from South India. At Jack's retreat, his meditation cushion looked like a nest surrounded by crystals, feathers, rosaries, and photos of various great teachers. Every time a meditation session began, he would chant various mantras, recite a string of prayers, all of this, his best effort to heal himself. But Jack intuited that what it was really doing was warding off grief, distracting him from his grief. After a few days, Jack Cornfield asked the man if he would be willing simply to sit without all his sacred object, without his mantras and his prayers. He agreed, and in five minutes, he was weeping. Soon he was sobbing and then wailing. He had finally taken that one seat in the heart of his great sorrow. He had finally truly begun to grieve. Jack says, we all exercise courage when we take the one seat. Flitting from thing to thing drives us to distraction. Otherwise, it's like digging a lot of shallow wells instead of one deep one. We never find water. After Michelangelo died, someone found a piece of paper in his studio on which he had written a note to his apprentice in the handwriting of his old age. It said, draw, Antonio, draw, Antonio, draw, and do not waste time. Beloved spiritual companions, may we choose to live one world at a time, That siren song of distraction, novelty bias, continued partial attention, and mind wandering are a threat to our joy. Let's manage our phones rather than letting them manage us. Try the three more rule. Pay attention. Take a break. Meditate. Try four seven eight, in-breath, hold, out-breath, and take the one seat. In closing, here are the final lines of a poem we love, Mary Oliver's The Summer Day. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention with your one wild and precious life. Amen. And now for our benediction, I invite you to put your hands over your heart in Namaste. I bow to the divine in you. This is from Indian author Kalidasa's the exhortation to the dawn. Look to this day, for it is life, the very life of life. In its brief course lie all the verities and realities of our existence. For yesterday is but a dream, and tomorrow but a vision. Let us look well, therefore, to this day. Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and pass it on. The service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. I love you. Amen.